Two and a Half Admins, episode 124. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, a job vacancy plug, Alan. You're looking for someone to join your team at Clara. Yes, uh, we're looking for people with ZFS experience. You know, if you've used ZFS in anger and would like to join our team to help people deploy ZFS and support ZFS, we're looking for you. So please get in touch. Link in the show notes. Feels like we might have a couple of those in our listener base. I would hope so. So would I. Let's do some news then. And the news that seemed to dominate the holiday period was LastPass and their notice of recent security incident. Yes. Biggest thing is that this is basically just a continuation of the one from back in August. And that fact is part of the problem, I think. (laughs) So they say, uh, based on our investigations to date, we've learned that an unknown threat actor accessed a cloud-based storage environment, leveraging information they obtained from the incident we discussed back in August of 2020. While no customer data was accessed during the August 2020 incident, or sorry, 2022 incident, some source code and technical information were stolen from our development environment and used to target another employee, obtaining credentials and keys, which were then used to access and decrypt some storage volumes in cloud-based storage services. Good old-fashioned sysadmin hunt. Yeah. I have been on the receiving end of one of those. But then they go on to say, oh, it's fine because our password policy is strong and it's all encrypted. Don't worry about it, which was torn apart by professionals in the industry. Yes. So the vault where you actually, where it actually stores your actual passwords for stuff is encrypted with your passphrase. And so the strength of that is entirely up to you. And they note that because someone was able to steal those, they could sit there and attempt to brute force them, but they're probably not going to get ones that aren't, uh, that are protected with a decent master password. But they did get a bunch of the other information that's not encrypted in your vault, but it was only just encrypted in the cloud storage with the keys that the attackers managed to get. So things like company names, end user names, billing addresses, email addresses, telephone numbers, IP addresses. The list of web earls kind of made me cock my head to the side like the little confused dog, you know? Like, they weren't real clear on what that list of web earls was. (laughs) Well, it sounds like if you've got a password for Google.com, they didn't bother encrypting the fact that it is for Google.com. They just encrypted the password and the username. But, okay, everyone pretty much has a Google.com account, but there's certain sites that maybe don't want people to know you've got an account with. Right, and now they have your name and billing address and email address to try to send you those. We know that you have a saved password for Pornhub.com. Yeah, you're one of those people who makes comments there. If I used LastPass, I would be worried about people potentially knowing about my deep fascination with Cornhub. (laughs) Like we said before, this is basically good old-fashioned sysadmin hunt. They got a foot in the door. That original foot in the door didn't take them any place as great as they hoped, perhaps, in August. But it gave them enough to target a key employee, although that key employee was not named, and they got back in that way. And that is a very time-tested way for not usually so much like proper red teams, but but actual no-kidding black hats are very fond of the sysadmin hunt. Because they know that once you compromise the person in that role, you generally gain all the power in that role. And if you know that person's a sysadmin, well, there's going to be some fun goodies in there. Like we already mentioned, the vaults themselves are encrypted with your master passphrase. And if that master passphrase is strong, there's no reason to believe that the attackers will get in. There is also absolutely no reason to believe that 
many, let alone most of their actual customer vaults, truly have strong passphrases that follow the uh, best practices guidelines that um, that LastPass referred to in this press release. I recently had the displeasure of becoming involved with a corporate LastPass setup and running security strength audits on it. And I found that, um, let's just say it was not just more than 50%. It was a lot more than 50% of our users had a password that failed according to those best practices, whether it was because it was reused and had been present in a dump somewhere else or was insufficiently complex, you know, it was bad. It was real bad. (laughs) Yeah. And that can be the trick with password managers is that it ends up being the password you have to use the most. And so you don't make it necessarily as crazy as the other ones. And it's like, well, but it protects all the other ones. So if it's not strong enough, it's no good. Yeah, that's the one that should be the absolute strongest. Your password strength guide is generally going to be, assuming you're using a password locked password manager, that should be your strongest password. Then below that, immediately below that, anything to do with a primary email account should be absolutely as strong as the ones you used for your vault to begin with. Yes, because that's the one that can reset all the passwords. And that's definitely one of the biggest things you got to watch out for. I understand the desire for a password management system that's available from anywhere with relatively minimal effort, which in part is almost inevitably going to mean, you know, some kind of cloud distribution of the vault in its fully encrypted form. And I would like to compare these issues that LastPass is having with the strategy of using, for example, KeePass. KeePass will allow you to store your password vault on Google Drive, for example. And if you do that, then it will load the copy from Google Drive and then decrypt it locally only. It never is decrypted. The key is never stored anywhere on the cloud. It is only there on your individual client, and it's only there when you type it in to unlock it. Now, the other thing about that is we see all this extra metadata that got leaked in this this big LastPass attack. Whereas if somebody is going after your Gmail, your G drive already, they already know who you are. Like you're not leaking any of that. Like if they manage to get in, you're still in a much better position than you would have been. You're also a much less valuable target because if you're a black hat and you think, well, I could go after Jim Salter's personal Google drive account and try to get whatever's in there. Or I could go after LastPass or 1Password and potentially get access to, you know, hundreds of thousands of valuable credentials. Well, guess which one's going to get the higher quality black hats? You know, when I first heard it, I was slightly curious if it meant that LastPass didn't rotate all their cloud credentials, like the keys, after the first incident. But it looks like mostly the attackers used information they got from the first incident to compromise somebody who maybe then would have the new keys. But it seems like LastPass probably could have done more to make sure that data that people got from the first attack couldn't be used to access data. But without a lot more detail, it's hard to say anything. Yeah, it's really impossible to say. I mean, for all we know, the data that they got that they used to target the one guy that blah, 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 it could literally have just been finding out that he was a sysadmin or she was a sysadmin in, you know, some area of the company they were interested in. And then they could have just, you know, gone out to use public recon tools to see if that person was in any dumps and look for reused creds and yada, yada, but we'll never know. But I, I have to strongly suspect from the timeline and from the general methodology and from having 
been the victim of a successful sysadmin hunt once myself, I strongly suspect that what it really came down to is they located the person that they wanted in the role that they wanted to compromise, and they found someplace that person fucked up. Yeah. That's how it happened to me. (laughs) Different question about why any one person at LastPass has the decryption keys to read everybody's name, billing address, email address, phone number, etc. But at the same time, you know, you need keys to be able to push stuff into the cloud. I do wonder for some of that, especially for backups, why we don't see more asymmetric keys there. Yeah. Where the key to encrypt it and send it to the cloud is one, but to restore it is a different key so that if, you know, machines that have keys to be able to write to the cloud get compromised, that it doesn't compromise the rest of the cloud. Well, and I think, you know, the flip side of the zero trust architecture, obviously zero trust is a great idea where it's practical and it saved a lot of people's bacon in this particular compromise who did have strong passphrases. They don't have to worry about their vault, the interior of their vault being compromised, which is fantastic. The flip side of that coin is that the company that implemented it, I find very frequently will lean on the PR aspect of saying we implemented zero trust and they just start dumping everything else just into buckets willy-nilly and who gives a crap because they know they can just, oh, well, you know, your passwords are safe because we don't even have your, you know, and they just kind of don't bother with the rest because whatever, good enough. I've seen consumer backup companies that will claim to have a zero trust architecture, but then in practice, it's almost impossible to actually have that because there's a million different ways to poke a pinhole in it accidentally. Like uh, one consumer backup company I looked at claimed uh, Spider Oak One. They claimed zero trust, but if you ever so much as log into the website ever, they now have your password and there is no longer zero trust. Right. And it's like, if any of them ever offer you some option, if you lose your key or something, then it, it definitely wasn't zero knowledge. Mm-hmm. What I also found interesting is the amount of stuff that wasn't encrypted in the vault. And I'm guessing most of this was because it was information LastPass wanted to have access to, like the list of websites. And part of that is for usability. They know, okay, here's the websites people go to. We want to make sure that the autofill works well on that site and so on. But it does seem, you know... The breach of that zero trust. Yeah, that there's this much information that isn't encrypted that way, like the list of URLs and a bunch of the other bits was because they have use for that data. And so they didn't want you to have that hidden from them. Assuming that we're interpreting what a list of web roles actually meant in that pretty uninformative press release, that can be some incredibly sensitive data. I mean, one might hypothetically imagine a high-placed Republican politician who was in the closet. And, well, a list of the earls that that person needed the password to unlock could be kind of a big deal, you know? Well, not just that, like literally some of these URLs in the password manager will have giant query strings on them with like possibly somewhat sensitive data. Yeah, that as well. But, you know, when when you discover that somebody has a uh, somebody has been entering in a password to silverdaddy.com or whatever, you don't really need much of a query string embedded on the URL to figure out what's going on. Yeah, but I'm just saying that the URL itself already has privacy implications. It's why DNS privacy is a thing, but also that the URL could contain a lot of other metadata. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, 
It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account, and you get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash 25A. So just today as we're recording, news broke from the information that Microsoft is planning to integrate ChatGPT into Bing to potentially challenge Google's crown as top dog of search. What could possibly go wrong with this, eh? My immediate memory flashed back to when Microsoft released the chat bot on Twitter and after like how many days it was a Nazi? (laughs) Which one? (laughs) That happened to both Tay and Zoe. Tay was the one I was thinking of. Yeah, those were both Microsoft uh, chat bots, AI powered, that very rapidly turned Nazi thanks to the internet. I I think the idea that Bing is going to suddenly supplant Google just by integrating chat GPT is pretty far-fetched. There are a lot of interesting possibilities in integrating ChatGPT. It's a very, very capable algorithm, but the problem is that while it does a great job at producing authoritative-seeming text about a topic, it will very frequently get those details wrong, and you'll never know unless you're an expert to begin with. And if you weren't an expert to begin with, well, then you probably wouldn't have been binging it, for God's sake. The more interesting possibility for near-future deployment of ChatGPT as a function of a search engine is probably not so much in generating the actual content, but in uh, producing like really neat little summaries. I could definitely see some user interest in a search engine that would succinctly describe a link that you're thinking about clicking from, you know, the list of possibilities for something for the answer that you were getting. If you had like a little one graph summary, that would be pretty cool. That would be pretty compelling. But I I think if we're really going to talk about this, we have to bring up the elephant in the room, which is that everyone I have ever encountered who recommended Bing search specifically recommended it for porn. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Because it just has less filtering. (laughs) You know, I I see possibly more of a use case using ChatGPT-like functionality to kind of like Google does suggest alternative searches to basically use it to kind of try to understand the user's question and like still leaving the user in charge of deciding if that's what they meant, but doing a better job than Bing does now at being like, is this what you're talking about? I'm just going to go with no thank you because Google's parsing already tends to piss me off. And there are many, many times that I really wish I could go back to the days of having a pure Boolean phrase entry that would not get AI'd into nonsense for me. Yes, but you and I are power users. We are, but my point is that even Google, who are literally the best people on the planet, hands down at building a search engine, have already been hitting unintended possibilities and, you know, malfeatures as they make their their search box more and more natural language parsed. 
I am not arguing that nobody should have access to that because it's bad. It's an enormous boon to tons of people. And a lot of the time it is to me as well. I wish that I had the what I described as an alternate interface. My point is, if Microsoft is planning on outdoing Google in that area by just baking some chat GPT, ooh, ooh, those results are going to be rough. And once you start getting into like the suggested alternate search query thing, I mean, you are right back really quickly into accidental Nazi territory, especially if, you know, Microsoft, like everybody else that starts algorithmically modifying text results on a timeline or a search starts thinking, well, what we really want to do is maximize engagement. Well, there you go. (laughs) There you go. That's what does it right there. Because you know what gets people really freaking engaged when you turn them into Nazis. Or a couple other subgenres too, but yeah, the same, it's all the same idea. Anytime we're using machine learning in this stuff, it is taking all the control levers away from people and just assuming what the computer says makes sense. And it can lead to a lot of accidental and unexpected consequences, whether that's the machine learning has radicalized people or is just giving bogus results or it has unintended racial biases or a specific political bent or whatever. As much as humans are bad at it and and humans abuse levers, if no one has the levers, it's probably worse. That's why I'm a lot more comfortable with the idea of chat GPT generated summaries of links, because the vast majority of websites do not do a good job of summarizing their own content for search engines. They never have. They tend to game it when they do, and what they do put in there is complete crap trying to rocket to the top of the listings. Also, they don't really have any way of writing a summary that specifically targets the question that you had. Whereas in theory, ChatGPT could look at your query, feed you the same results you would have gotten without ChatGPT ever to begin with, but give you a little, you know, succinct summary, not only of each result for your query, even potentially a summary that was tailored to the thing you asked about. So instead of telling you a description necessarily just in general of that page that it recommended, it can tell you, I'm recommending this one because they talk about what you asked about in this way. Now that is all pretty interesting and I don't see a huge downside to it because at the end of the day, you know, if it writes crappy summaries, well, it's not ideal, but you started out with crap and you still see all the results to go to. So I don't see a whole lot of potential for harm there. Either way, I think Microsoft's going to get a good return on their billion dollar investment with this. This is the part where I am very surprised because I swear to God, when you started saying either way, Microsoft's gonna, my brain auto-completed, screw this up one way or the other. (laughs) No, it's going to be amazing. And uh, it's going to be a whole new paradigm for search on the web. Well, I was just interested in this this one little graph here from about Google saying, Google has already said it won't immediately launch its own rival because of the reputational risk, mm-hmm. citing uh, bias and factuality issues with existing AI chatbots as why they don't want to use it to replace search yet. Google learned caution with this stuff after the multi-year fiasco with the YouTube recommendation engine. Mm-hmm. Bless their hearts. Well, what they learned was don't risk our reputation, not don't notify people. <laughs> You know what? I'm just happy that they came to the conclusion that getting a reputation for notifying people was a bad thing that they should avoid because uh, I don't know if you've been around since 2016, but we've learned that not everybody agrees with that statement. That is true. Let's do some free consulting then. But first of all, a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. 
If you want to learn more about that, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan or your feedback, you can email show at 2.5admins.com. And do send in your free consulting questions. But as I always say, the shorter the better. Another perk of being a patron is you get to skip the queue, which is what Lyndon has done. Lyndon writes, I'm planning a new home server setup. I've had good success with cross-site async replication using ZFS, but I want to use KVM live migration across two or three hosts with my new setup. I've done lots of reading on the best ways to do this, but found nothing concrete. Do I scrap ZFS for Ceph? Gluster on top of ZFS? What's the best route to take in 2023 for high availability storage to enable live migration? So normally with live migration, what you would have is separate storage. So rather than the storage being on one of those three hosts, it would be centralized, and then you can live migrate a VM from host one to host two, because the storage would stay the same on the separate storage, like basically a SAN. This is the strategy I refer to as the SAN will never die. <laughs> I would like to applaud Lyndon for specifically wanting HA storage, not just HA VM hosts. That puts Lyndon in a very narrow category of the people who claim they have high ability because all the rest of them just opted for that. The sand will never die. We don't need high availability there. So what this boils down to in order to have high availability on the storage side, you probably are going to need to refer to that network storage as though it's not on the local machine even if it actually is on the local machine, because you want that storage access to work regardless of which compute host the VM is actually running on. So that just brings us back to we need HA-capable storage. On the high end, that can certainly be a clustered file system like Lustre. ZFS absolutely can be a backend underneath that. However, in a home lab environment, something like Lustre may be a lot more than you really want to bite off there are some very serious performance implications for true clustered storage. They tend not to work very well on a small scale and even a large scale. They frequently don't work that well for high IOP stuff unless they've been very, very specifically hand tuned for exactly that. And then they tend to suck at everything else. So another simpler option I would recommend at least taking a look at is just the old school DRBD distributed block device. It's a whole lot simpler to set up. You set it up as a very simple two-way mirror. It's just, you know, the mirrors are on different hosts and run across a transport network. And then separately, uh, you have a, a heartbeat program that lets those hosts know, you know, which one is the primary right now and which one is the secondary. There is still some complexity there. You need to keep on top of that heartbeat demon. You have to know that it's working properly, lest you find yourself in a split plane scenario that is a real pain in the butt to recover from. But again, if this is mostly a home lab type thing or smaller scale, I would definitely recommend at least looking at DRBD before you dive off the deep end. Yeah, I think ZFS is probably still the right thing. It's just depending on how you're fitting that in either with DRBD or like we were talking about having a separate storage server that's maybe HA between itself and a second host, possibly with shared physical disks because if you're not going to duplicate all your disks, then you have to do it that way. So something like SAS multipath with two heads and the heartbeat between them, and then you know one can take over for the other. And then your N number of compute hosts all access that storage, and so live migration is easy. Or you can do that with something hyper-converged with cluster so that the storage is local, 
but it's part of a cluster so that you can move that VM to another machine where it could then continue to be local. But any type of cluster thing gets complicated really quickly and means that if anything ever does go wrong, you're in for a long haul trying to sort it out. And that's why oftentimes something less complicated like DRDB or just regular ZFS with iSCSI or something is less likely to be the source of needing to fail something over. ZFS is absolutely the right answer for underneath the DRBD or the clustered file system because the important thing to remember is that for the most part, a clustered or even just a distributed file system like DRBD, it doesn't reduce the opportunities for corruption. It increases them significantly. The more you can eliminate from that by having ZFS underneath with its per block checksumming, the better off you're going to be. Right. And you want to keep having that cross-site asynchronous replication so you can have backups. Just because you have HA, that's not a backup. That just keeps something up. It doesn't mean you can restore if something gets overwritten or something gets corrupt or something goes haywire. You're still going to want that async replication. So you need kind of the bottom layer of your storage to always end up being ZFS. Okay, Ziggy writes, I'm looking at an aging three terabyte RAID 1 mirror in my TrueNAS scale NAS, currently reporting some low level errors. And I'm thinking, okay, going to have to replace that array soon. Given the cost of spinning Rust versus SSD, I got to wondering, is the cost of SSD going to be worth the expenditure over time in terms of lower power consumption? Short answer, no. There's not anywhere near as much difference as people tend to believe there is between uh, spinning Rust drives and solid state drives. I mean, you're, you're talking about at idle, which is you know in a home NAS environment going to be what those drives are doing the vast majority of the time. You're typically talking about a difference of, you know, between like a half a watt and maybe one and a half watts per drive. Under load, the uh, the difference, if I recall, actually decreases a little. Uh, SSDs are, are pretty power hungry when they're really getting saturated performance-wise. So the real question is going to be, a three terabyte RAID 1 mirror is like hilariously outdated. There are two valid paths of action forward. Going SSD is one of them because SSDs have gotten quite inexpensive. It would not cost much at all to upgrade that RAID 1 system from Rust to solid state. And the benefits from getting that is way better performance. You do manage to get yourself out of a certain class of problems, like it becomes no longer an issue for the drives if you knock the NAS you know, off the counter and it like falls to a hard concrete floor or whatever. As long as you don't physically break the SSDs, they won't care about getting jostled, whereas the hard drives would very likely get screwed up. Another big plus is the SSDs will be quiet. That's one of the things that I would be looking at the hardest in a setup like that. Your other reasonable course of action to say, well, I can cheaply replace my Rust drives with far larger Rust drives. So the question becomes, would you rather have a very slightly less power-hungry system, much, much, much quieter for not a whole lot of extra money, or would you rather have a much higher capacity system for not a whole lot more money? Yeah, like I think the sweet point on dollars per terabyte right now is 14 terabyte drives. Mm-hmm. And because you only have a mirror, you'd only have to buy two. You're not looking at, you know, buying six or 12 like some people's uh, NASs would be. And so, yeah, that's that's what I got my brother-in-law to do. He just bought two 14 terabyte enterprise drives because they were actually cheaper on Amazon that week and mirrored those and put all his media on that instead of the collection of old hard drives he had. And he's got a lot more space. It's actually mirrored now where it wasn't before. And these get better throughput and 
They're not drives that are about to die. You know, when you say reporting some low-level errors, I'm like, I'm not entirely sure what you mean by that, but it means... Uh, but I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely not okay. So either you're getting SSDs and three plus terabytes is still not the cheapest uh, on SSDs, but up to about two has gotten pretty inexpensive now. Maybe you can get some reasonably priced four terabyte drives for SSD, but for that same money, you could have much, much bigger hard drives. And so it's, like Jim said, the trade-off is, do you want quiet or do you want big? And then just pick one and and do it. Yeah, two terabyte SSDs are uh, as cheap as any SSD and price per terabyte right now. That's generally what I'd recommend. And honestly, I was assuming from the character of Ziggy's question, you know, it's a true NAS, scale NAS, uh, RAID 1 mirror, otherwise unspecified. I don't think that's custom-built hardware. Sounds like it's most likely, you know, generic off-the-shelf PC, in which case it should not be hard to put in three drives instead of two. So, you know, you can you can get your capacity that way. Just use two terabyte SSDs and uh, do a three-way RAID Z1 if you're doing ZFS or, God bless you, RAID 5 if you're not running ZFS. Well, luckily it's true NAS, so it's ZFS. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good point. But yeah, the advantage of going with at least a three terabyte drive is you could actually replace the hard drive with an SSD in that mirror and let it resilver and then replace the other half and not have to rebuild the whole pool. But it's only three terabytes of data. It's not going to take long to copy. It's not like we're talking hundreds of terabytes here. So Plus, it's not the worst thing to move all that data fresh over because, I mean, you get free defrag out of it, you know, it's just... It's kind of nice. If you're talking about a small volume of data, copying it over rather than trying to resilver things into the same pool name is almost certainly going to be the correct move. Yeah, like to the point where I've considered in the past building out systems that deal with a lot of small blocks to have twice as much storage as they need and set up as sending to itself like every six months to defrag it. But in summary, just buy a bunch of big drives and just suck it up the tiny bit of extra power they're going to use, which is not even that significant. And like Jim said, if they're actually using it, the differences are even smaller. And, you know, it's not going to add up to dollars a year. Right. Well, we better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or your feedback. You can find me on Mastodon or at jrs.com. You can find me on Twitter for now at jrssnet. Maybe Mastodon sometime soon. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.